0: This morning we're reading Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 44 through chapter 5, verse 21. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbron, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arba on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arba, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, Who are all of us here alive today? The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the Father on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor to do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, You, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, my name's Dylan, one of the pastors here. Uh, Each week we get the privilege of reading and hearing the word of the Lord. God has spoken, and it is a tremendous and unspeakable mercy that we get to hear from God. And we need to be reminded that God's word forms us. And it doesn't just form us as individuals, it, it forms us into a people. So I want to encourage you that we need to live life As a people together in relationship with one another in community. Uh, We're going to go through, you just heard God's word, the Ten Commandments. And it'll be, in a way, a a fly through these. Uh, What we would encourage you to do is to live life in community. Jump into one of our home groups. If you don't have one, find us. Talk about how you can get into one so that you can discuss these further. Because, again, this word forms us, not only as individuals, but as a people to live this out with one another Uh, as we walk before the Lord together. And as we turn to these ten words, let's pray this prayer from Psalm 119 together. Open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. It's hard to find more important words to the nation of Israel I mean, these are the words that, that God only spoke to them, but actually writ, wrote down with his, his finger, with his hand. These words were then enshrined, and they were put in the ark, and they were alongside the ark, and they were with Israel the, the whole duration of their life together. So it's, it's hard to get to more central and important words for the, the community of Israel, God's people that he had delivered out of Egypt and was taking to the promised land. And it's these ten Commandments; these ten words that are to form and to shape the people of God as they're living life before God, which they are to do, live life under his good reign and his good rule, and as they're living life with one another in community as the people of God. And so if they're to be his people and he's going to be their God, and they're to function as his people, then this law is central to how they live that out before him and before one another, and so Moses is going to recall while Israel is on the edge of the promised land, he is going to recall, remind them of the ten words, the ten commandments. But before he does that, he gives us a few brief introductory but important words as they sit just, again, just east of the promised land, east of Eden. It says in verse 45. Now, again, Moses is setting this before the people, a new generation, but he says these are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So again, Moses is not giving them a new law. This is not a new covenant that he's setting before them. This is addressed to the people of Israel, which is the same people that came out of Egypt, but a new generation, right? They're the same but different, the same chosen people, same line that God had redeemed from Egypt, it came out of Egypt, where God redeemed them with his mighty hand and outstretched arm, where he showed not only Israel, his people, but the world, his amazing power. But he displayed it for the sake of this people that he set his love on, he chose, and he redeemed. So these introductory words are important as they even think about, we came out of Egypt. And then in verse 46 through 49, he's going to remind them of the, the victories that they've gotten up until this point that God had given them over Sihon and Og along the way to the promised land, here kind of 40 years after they received these words the first time. And so this is important that we see that, that the backdrop, before we get into the law, before we get into these 10 commandments, these 10 words, that the backdrop for this is the, the backdrop of God's gracious choosing of them, God's setting his love upon them, God's redeeming of them, freeing of them. In other words, the grace of God is going to precede the law of God. Grace goes before the law. All that God commands of them is, is going to be from them. Is going, they're going to be commanded to respond to what he has already done for them, to who he already is for them. We we misunderstand Old Testament commands if we read them back and we think, oh, here's what Israel was to do. If they kept the commands, then they would be God's people. Then they would belong to God. Then they would be accepted to God. Then they'd have God's love. They'd have His salvation. We misread it if we think that. The opposite is actually true. Look, Look at what He says here He redeemed them out of Egypt because he loved them, because he chose them, he saved them, he delivered them, and because he's done that, now in response to what he's done, he's going to command them these things. And the New Testament commands are the same. Right, and, and again, God hasn't stopped commanding, as if in the New Testament, he, he's really gracious and he won't tell you what to do anymore. No, he's still, there are many commands, they're all over the scripture, but they're in the same order, right? That they're, they're based upon, they're founded, and they're grounded upon who God is and what He has done. And we are then to live in response to those things. So think about First John. Maybe you're like me, can't quite get it out of your head yet. First John, chapter 4, verse 9. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son in the world, that we might live through Him. Right? He sent His Son again, not because the world was so lovable, because He is Himself love. Ten, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, what are we to do in response, beloved? If God so loved us, what do we to do? Love one another. Or in verse 9, we love because he first loved us. In other words, he's going to command us. You need to love one another. You need to love God. But why? Because you're responding to the love that God had already given to you. He loved you first. You didn't love him. He showed you love, and you're to respond to his love by then loving him and loving others. In other words, God's actions are driving our actions. You see this in the, in the book of Romans so clearly. Right? This, this grand explanation of the gospel of God. And, and Paul gives it all these chapters of what the gospel is and looks like and all this application to it. And then he comes to chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he looks back on everything and says, in view of the mercies of God, which there are many, right, that would deliver us from our slavery to sin, our idolatry, that would give us a place, a belonging, an eternal home, that nothing could separate us from this God. Now we're adopted sons of his. And he looks back on all this and says, by the mercies of God, what are we to do? To obey the command. We're we're to present our lives as a living sacrifice, doing all that God wants us to do, living wholly and totally unto God. That is our response. That is our worship of what God has done and who God is. And so, what God has done, what God is doing, is the ground and the foundation for His people's response of faith and obedience to Him. We say it this way, you perhaps have heard it this way, that the indicatives, what is, are just plain statements, what God is, what he has done, those are the things that drive and ground and precede the imperatives, the commands in the scripture always. So we obey and we live by the word, not to earn God's love, not to earn God's favor, not to receive or to gain our salvation, our acceptance, our belonging, but those who are in Christ, we believe, we obey, we do what God has tells us to do because we are loved. We are accepted. We do belong in Christ. We are his people. They're ours in Christ. And too often we think of those things backwards. And it seems to be especially a problem when we look to the Old Testament. That somehow these are the people that have to earn their salvation by doing the law. And the reality is when we look here it's like God delivered them already. And he wants them to respond to his gracious deliverance of them in Egypt by obeying the commands that he's giving them. A right reading of Deuteronomy shows that we take, again, the grace of God first, and then it moves from the grace of God to the law. Look in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Moses summoned them. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Then the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Again, the statutes and rules, that that sounds really demanding, doesn't it? Maybe it sounds kind of controlling, but within the backdrop of a gracious God who has redeemed them. Who, who has delivered them in a mighty way, in a way that they couldn't. They, they couldn't have received their freedom. They couldn't have earned it and gained it from Egypt. They were powerless under the thumb of the Egyptians. And God graciously intervened. He, he came to them. He rescues them. He delivers them out of their slavery. And now he's bringing them into a good and promised land. So statutes and rules sounds demanding, but again, it's, it's in the backdrop of this gracious God. And, and with that background, here God is going to command. And that too is gracious. This is not the norm in the time. One author says that in the ancient Near East, gods were not known for their consistency. Worshippers were left to guess what might please their god or displease him. And this could change from day to day. If you've read the Iliad, this this happens like, and these gods are so temperamental and moody. It's like one, one moment they're for one side, then they're for another side, then they're for this guy, then for that guy. Like they're always changing their mind. It's causing all sorts of problems among men. I and mean, It's a terrible situation. You, you remember, I referenced this last week, but Elijah on Mount Carmel, he, he goes up there in the prophets of Baal. At first, they're just crying out to their God because that's what they think they will do for him to consume the sacrifice that they've put out there, but that doesn't work. So he says, well, maybe shout louder. Like maybe that's what he wants. But turns out that's not what he wanted. So he said, they start cutting themselves and they're, they're, they're literally bleeding and, and trying to bring down the, the, the fire from heaven from their God. Do they know that he wants that? They don't know. We'll just try blood now. Let's just cut ourselves. Didn't work. And, you know, of course, you know, Elijah taunts him, like, well, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's, maybe he's, maybe he's going to the bathroom. You right. Know, like, they don't know what he wants. Again, this is a God that doesn't speak. I mean, I think about it. If there's no speed limit, if there's no sign that posts us, like, here's how fast you can go, then you don't know if you're going too fast or if you're going too slow, Either side of that, you, you, you don't know, and, and, and if the speed limit is changing every single day, then again, you're having problems. Am I going too fast or am I going too slow? Maybe it depends upon the day because they keep changing it. The, the gods of, of Canaan, of the ancient Near East, they didn't speak, so it was anybody's guess. Who, who knew what to do to gain their favor and salvation? They'd try all sorts of things, but they were guessing because their gods don't speak. And because they didn't know, or because it could have changed all the time, it was anybody's guess. And how different, how distinct was Israel's God. That not only did he speak, just a great mercy, but he speaks making known to them what he wants. That the law is an expression of his desires. Here's what I want done. Here's what is required of you. And what we see in the law is this God is not moody or temperamental. He's not flying off the handle. Right? He's, a, he's saying, Here, here's what I want to be known to you. The, the statutes and the rules, they make known to the people, this is what matters to me. This is what I value. This is what you need to value because you're my people. The, the laws, the, they reflect the very character and nature of God. This is why when it says in verses 1 and 2 that he made this covenant with them, is again a, a tremendous mercy It's both legal, yes, there there are some legal demands here, there are stipulations, there are things to obey, things to do, but it's also loving. They didn't deserve relationship with God, he came to them. He set his affection on them, and again, this is not like any other God. This is an incomparable God, like there's none that that, that compares to him, and he speaks and he makes known what he wants from them. He's a very loving God, and so we read verse 3 through 5 of chapter 5, he continues, Moses says, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And so Moses is saying, we are one people with those who are at the mountain. Again, this is a new generation same people. In other words, God is speaking to us. The same people that God revealed himself to, the same people that God spoke to. And he says, that even, he spoke to you face to face. Now again, we, we know this to be metaphorical language, right? That they, they did not want to talk to him face to face. They were scared. But what Moses is communicating is, he spoke to you personally. You are his people. He spoke to you directly. Like this God communicated with this people. You are part of that. That's what Moses is getting at. And this God who speaks, this God who makes Himself known, who shows His desires and His character and the things that He says, calls for obedience. But it matters that when He calls for obedience, He is not some sort of impersonal, distant or hidden God. And so He gives His law, and it shows what He's like and what He wants done. And so the ten words, the ten commandments that are about to be recited, they, these words, these commands are at the very heart of the covenant that God made with Israel. They're at the very heart of, of their lives together. They are central for them. These ten are the standard for all the laws that we're going to see throughout Deuteronomy. I mean, again, it's hard to get more central as words, as a law, than these. Written by the finger of God, placed in the ark, repeated for them. Now, when we turn to the ten words, what we need to probably, and what we will figure out really quickly, is that they're actually more than ten words, <laughs> There's more than 10 imperatives here, right? There's a few of them that we kind of lump together. It's like, well, that's one, and yet there's several imperatives in that. And though they're commands, there certainly are 10 commandments, the Scripture calls them 10 words. Now, that's interesting. Why why 10 words? I think that the author here is is making a connection as he's carried along by the Spirit, writing out these 10 words, calls them 10 words because he's making a connection with what happened at Horeb, at Sinai, and what happened at creation. How did God create? He spoke. By his powerful word, things come into existence. And guess what? The words, and he said, occurred ten times in the creation account. And So, one author tells us that in a very real way, the entire creation depends or hangs upon the word of God. And here, the the law, the ten words that are recalling that, the book of the covenant is what forges Israel into a nation. It is her national constitution, so to speak. And it is also ten words that brings about the birth of the nation. So like creation, Israel as a nation hangs upon ten words. God's people... We know then from creation onward, we're never a people that existed or were kept or sustained apart from God's word. They are always a people who are hanging upon the word of God, dependent upon God's word. Israel now as a nation, like all of creation, is to hang upon the very word of God. And even now, church, Jesus is the one we know. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us is upholding the universe by the word of his power that all hangs On his word. And what does he say to us that that now the word goes out? And and how does faith come? Faith. The entrance into the people of God, hearing with faith, it comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Or, or Paul says in Galatians, he says, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it for, from doing something? No, it's from hearing by, with faith. That's how you became part of the people of God. In other words, your very life and existence as someone who is a believer, a Christian in the people of God, hangs upon you hearing the word of God and believing that word. We know that the word then in the New Testament, Hebrews talks about it like this, that it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns all the way down to our hearts and our thoughts. And we need that so that we can be exposed for the sinners that we are and be exposed to our need for righteousness, which again is revealed to us in the word, comes through Christ, comes through him. It gives us and challenges the thoughts of our hearts. We know that it corrects us, it trains us, it teaches us. The, the man of God, that we might be equipped for every good work. So we need this in order to live the life that God has meant us to live. And we know that man then doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is this total dependency from all time, from creation onward. For God's people, they are dependent upon God's word. They hang on it for their very being. This word forms them, it brings them in, and it fuels them forward as His people. And so, if you're a believer and you're not depending upon God's word for your very life, then I think you need to examine to see if you are in the faith or not, because this is the word that our very life comes from. And if we're not depending upon that word, then then what are we depending upon? And so, then we get to this word dependent upon this word, and Israel is dependent upon these 10 words that even harken back to creation. But as we think about these 10 words, we're not on the edge of the promised land we're not Israelites. So how are we to hear these words? How are Christians to hear and apply these these 10 words? We know that as the New Testament comes along, it says that Christ fulfills the law. And so that now those who are in Christ are no longer under the law we're under grace. So, all right, do we even need to do this? Are the 10 words for us? Do we apply them to our lives or do we not? And this is a difficult question, and, and that means the answer is a little bit complex. The answer is kind of yes and no. And I think I'm helped by one commentator. Again, didn't, ten words here. There, there's a lot to this, so I didn't get all the slides up that you would have wanted probably. But one author says this, right? As a Christian, I'm not bound by the Ten Commandments because they are part of an agreement between God and Israel that does not apply to me. Again, Jesus fulfills the law so that now Hebrews can come along and say that that old covenant is now obsolete because there's a new covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the old and he's brought in a new covenant with him. So he continues. My relationship to God is based upon and defined by the new covenants. Nonetheless, within the new covenant, the divine instruction calls me to love my neighbor so that adultery, murder, stealing, etc. are still covenant violations that the righteousness of God has not changed so as a code before God we are not required to keep this to have standing before God but again as we think about the morality of the law and what it has demanded of us certainly the new covenant comes in and says yes you absolutely should be doing this that the righteousness of God is revealed here and that hasn't changed and to were to be righteous people In the name of our God, and so, yes, we're still to live righteous lives. I think the law is to be viewed completely, then, in relation to Christ. So, here's the law, then. It's not binding as an agreement with God, but it's also not ignored. All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for us, for instruction, for training, for teaching, for correcting us, for righteousness. And so, we need this law. It's not to be ignored. We want to uphold this law, but again... It's not binding upon us. I think there's a few different authors that spoke about it this way that I thought was helpful in, in thinking about relationship to the law. To think about the law as uh, our relationship with the law as, as an in-law. All right? If you have an in-law, you're related to them, you, you have connection to them, but it's, it's not as direct, right? It's, it's through marriage. I mean, because you're married, you're now connected to these in-laws. And so the relationship for us to the law is, is through Christ. We're we're now bound to him, and and in a very real sense, the New Testament talks about, he's our husband, we're the bride, he has sought us and won us, he has bound us to himself so that we have this covenant with him, a covenant that's for for the forgiveness of our sins where we're his people forever, and he's not going to go back on this covenant, We're, we're his, and our relationship for the law, to the law then, is through this marriage to Christ, and guess what Christ was like? he fulfilled the law. He perfectly kept it. He was the, the Psalm 1 man who meditated on the law day and night, who loved it, who delighted in the law, who wanted to obey the law. And so while the law might come along, like your in-laws might come along, and disapprove of the bride, the choice that the husband has made, and be like, well, I don't know, he's kind of lousy. We're getting ready to go through 10 words. There might be like, man, here's, there's 10 things that your bride is doing wrong. How, how dare you Because we have, now we are married to Christ, like, the covenant with him doesn't break. The relationship doesn't break. Because the in-laws don't have authority over that relationship, right? So they can say all they want about how bad we are in Christ can defend us because he's the one we're bound to. It's Christ. But again, because we are bound to him, because we love him, like as a husband and a wife, because there's that kind of love there, the more we love that husband... What are we going to do with the law? The more we're going to love the law, which he loved, right, which he walked in, which he perfectly followed and obeyed. So when we love Christ more, the more we're going to walk in the law and want to follow it because we're following Jesus who followed the law. So there's good reason for all of us to heed the warning of of chapter 5, verse 1, to hear this word, these words. And again, when we hear the word hear, we need to think not just physically hearing, but obeying, putting into practice. We need to learn and to be careful, again, verse 1, be careful to do these. Because these 10 words are still significant for us, even if they're not binding. These 10 words, they show Israel who God is, what he's like, and, and how to live life in right relationship with him and with one another. And, and here's the 10 that are given, right? They're to be taken as a whole. So as much as we might want to do them one at a time, and that would be helpful and that's okay to do, we do need to receive them as a whole. And so some of this is going to be really fast. We're not going to get to spend as much time with them as we probably would want. So, again, get in a group. But we're going to take them as a whole. Ten of them, not one and individually. But within the ten, there does seem to be a helpful order and structure. So the first four seem to define our relationship with the Lord. They're more vertical. They're defining our duties as people before God. The, the next one, commands five and words five through ten define our relationship with others. They're more horizontal. They are defining our duties with one another more. Now, there's certainly some overlap in this, but the structure, I think, fits well the way Jesus summarizes the the commands, doesn't he? What are the two greatest commands? That you love God vertically with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you what? Horizontally. You love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you're doing those things, you're obeying the law, and, and he summarizes it in two ways, kind of vertical and horizontal. So I think there's good reason to see this structure there, although there's certainly overlap. The ones in the middle, you know, commands four and five, the, the Sabbath and honoring your parents. There's, there's some horizontal and some vertical elements to those things, so certainly they don't fit uh, perfectly. But the four-six split has a long tradition that I think is helpful to us. Again, as we go to the 10 words, the 10 commandments, again, they're not 10 words and it gets back to creation, but even the way we number them is different among traditions. So the the Jewish tradition would take the first commandment as verse 6, I am the Lord your God, and then they'd go from there, uh, which we take as verse 6, we take as the prologue to the 10. Catholic and Lutheran traditions would take 7 and 8, those two verses as command number one, and then they would split on the end in verse 21, split verse 21 into two different commandments, so there's a different numbering with there. But I think there's good and right reason to receive it as we have received it. I think, again, no matter how you want to number it, I think it's most important to receive them as ten words, right? As ten commands, as what God wants for us, as expressing his character and nature. But I think the text does fit, and we have good and right reason to take verse 6 as the prologue, Take verses 7 through 15 as numbers 1 through 4 and defining vertical relationship with God. And verses 16 through 21 would be kind of 5 through 10 as defining horizontal relationships, our love for others. Now, as you go through these, many are stated negatively. You shall not, you shall not as prohibitions. God has no problem with saying, don't do something. And we thought that God may be like, maybe he's backing off of this because we want to be a really positive age. And he just still says, don't. He commands his people. Because he's loving, he wants good for them, and so he's going to tell them, don't do some things. But where he does that, we, we need to know that it's not just like, don't do this, like the, the kind of the adverse, the, the positive is also implied, is the responsibility. So when Jesus sums up, uh, sums up the, the commands, right, he doesn't say, you shall, not have, you shall have no other gods before me, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that, that was a negative command in a sense, don't do this. And Jesus says, love. Yeah, like he states it in the positive. And so we see this is, is part of the responsibility. He doesn't say, when we see do not murder, we also need to hear like, we need to d- demonstrate love for our neighbor the way God would desire for us. So the content then of verse 6, as we start these 10 words, is like Genesis, begins with God, and I think that's intentional and helpful, and it fits as a prologue along with the the words of of chapter 4, verse 44, all the way down to verse 6. They fit as a really good prologue to set the law up in the right place. Verse 6 says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when you are entering into, in in ancient trees, when you're entering into covenant relationship, it would you identify yourself as the party, the kind of the authoritative party, and this is what God is doing here. so it's a good to take it as a prologue and not a specific command. And the God who speaks with authority, who's going to call them to command and again, we're going to see this as we go through Deuteronomy, attach curses and blessings with the words that He's speaking. This is an authoritative God. He's going to call for obedience, but this God isn't impersonal. He, he's never hidden. He's not trying to be distant from them. He wants to be known. He wants to be down and in with them. He wants them to live life. And so he reveals himself. And how does he reveal himself? Uniquely, he reveals himself to Israel. And he reveals himself as the Lord, the I am, the great I am, the self-existent God, who's shown himself repeatedly in their history, especially up to this point, as this one who not only needs nothing in himself, but is this merciful God to them, this powerful deliverer. Who doesn't just say these words and has no power to back them up, but he speaks and he reveals himself to be this powerful, authoritative God. Amen. And again, these 10 words are seen here within verse 6 within the context of God's gracious salvation, gracious love, gracious acceptance of them. Right? He is their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't do it, they were in slavery. He brought them out. He's gracious, He's merciful. And so what He's saying is, You belong to me. I, I, I redeemed you, I delivered you. That's his gracious provision for them. And so in response to that, they're to obey. He can command them because they're his. He bought them, he redeemed them. So who God is and what God has done are the foundation for these 10 words. His redemption calls for their response. And so we get to the first of the 10 words. It's found in verse seven. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, I think that there's a good order to this so that, man, these first ones are kind of front-loaded. So we're going to go a lot faster once we get onto to the, the end of them. But we're going to spend a lot more time on these first, And we'll see why as we look through it. God demands, verse 7, this first command, wholehearted loyalty and devotion. Everything of them. I am God. they should have no other gods before me. God is the one who is to be known and loved as the only true God. And then he says that there are to be no other gods before me is is speaking right into the heart of the human condition. Because here's what we are as humans. It's not a question of if we will worship and if there will be a God in our lives. The question is, who will that God be? Or what will that God be? We were made to worship. The human heart will find something to worship. The question is what? And God addresses that with a very first command. Your soul is going to find an object to worship, and God says, there is to be no other object of worship other than me. I'm the only object of worship there is to be. Anything else, any other thing that you would turn your affection to, that you would worship, that you would love, that you would find your belonging and existence in, is an idol. But he knows the hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories, pumping out new things to find our acceptance, our our life, our existence, like we'll justify it in something. But God demands all of worship be directed to him and to him alone, which leads us right into again, and maybe even meant to be taken kind of as a pair, number two. So he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved idol, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. God had invited Israel to listen to his voice. Not to see him. In in chapter 4 verse 12. Listen to the words we heard last week. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words. But you saw no form. There was only a voice. And that's significant. Verse 15 of chapter 4. Therefore... Watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of fire. And then he's going to give them, right? Remember this, verse 16, he says, beware, and he lists all these things. Hey, don't make for yourself a carved image in the likeness of any of these things. And here he says, the command, number two, don't make for yourself a carved image. There's to be no making of images. Even images that represent God. Those are excluded too. There are hints in the Exodus account. That when Moses went on the mountain and the people were down, they started making this golden calf. There, there are hints, and I think it's likely that what they were trying to do wasn't to make up some new God, but trying to, in some way, represent the God of the mountain, the one that Moses was speaking, speaking to. And so what God says is, yeah, don't do that. Obviously, the, the golden calf incident met the, the very hard disapproval of God. That they were undermining all that he'd done already so quickly. Now, images that represent God, they're, they're excluded. In the ancient Near East, that's what images were for. Images themselves weren't necessarily deities, weren't necessarily gods, but they were to represent gods. And you could come to them and make offerings because they would mediate, in a sense, the presence of their God. And the one true living God, the one who actually speaks, says, don't do that. There, there's not a thing that is going to be able to mediate my presence that you could make that's going to work for that, that can actually represent me. And so God clearly disapproves of the golden calf and any other images that are made to even represent him. And because there's no images that are to be representing God, what that does is that cuts out all images that you might worship. There is no image worship. So not only are we not worshiping an image of God, but we're not worshiping any images at all because God is the only one who's to receive our worship. And this is a command that comes with a warning. In verse 9, shouldn't bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You think of, of covenant. God is making this, this legal and loving relationship with them. He's, he's binding it. You Think about other relationships alike. Think about the marriage covenant. What would happen if one of the spouses brought home another lover into the house? how should the spouse that's there respond to that? There there should be some anger. Like, if the spouse comes in with another lover and acts like everything is fine, then there's an issue. But on the other side, if there's no anger at what's going on, there's even a deeper issue, right? There's all sorts of problems. So God says here, no other gods before me. Don't even make an image. Don't bring those around. And pretend that there's another here because that doesn't work. And he says that he's this jealous God who, who like that spouse, would, would righteously be upset should another lover appear and say, don't do that. His jealousy would reflects and reveals the intensity of his love for them. The, no other gods. Your mind, exclusively mine. His love that would warn them in advance to say, hey, this is a bad way, and if you go this way, it's gonna bring you all sorts of problems. Following idols, worshiping images is gonna bring you all sorts of pain. God knows, right? And we, we know, we look forward, and what happens when they follow after idols? What happens when they're worshiping images? It brings Israel all kinds of pain. God warns them in advance to spare them and that pain. In his love for them, God would spare them of that. He knows that disobedience leads to long and hard consequences. So yeah, it, it's this negative form of don't do this. And and it even talks about consequences of doing this, that this will be visited upon you to the third and fourth generation. In other words, what's happening is when they're worshiping images, worshiping idols, it, their sin doesn't remain in themselves. Sin never does. It always spills over and it hits those that are closest every time. It's primarily against God, but it always is affecting somebody else. And so think about this. The third and fourth generation, think about a household. Kids, grandkids. I mean, you can probably span three or four. Again, Pastor Jay said this. Within a lifetime, you're looking around, and, and you're being formed. If you're looking up to someone, this is what worship looks like? You're being affected by this worship of an idol and of an image, and it's forming you and affecting you, and it's changing how you think about worship. And what God is warning is that, yes, that absolutely happens. And it doesn't stop easily. That's what he's warning. The third and fourth will say, this is not a quick thing to get rid of. And church, look at nations that have idols and even images that they bow down and worship. You know how hard it is to roll that back? It's difficult. They're walking in the consequence of their disobedience to God. He says, though, that it's for the third and fourth generation And get these words, though, of those who hate me. They've been formed a certain way by the worship they've seen around them, sure. But they're not innocent in this. They've given their worship to another. They've sought after another lover. They've brought them into this relationship and acted like everything is fine. They're not innocent. They're giving their worship away. They hate God is what it says. So there's not like some innocent party here that God is going to exact consequences on. There's only rebellious parties. And the warning is meant to stop the spreading of false worship, to keep them from moving in the direction of idolatry, to keep them from these consequences. God's warning is a a reminder of his grace. Don't go this way. It has long and hard consequences that aren't good for you. But also notice the flip side. Verse 10, the blessing. He shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me And keep my commandments. One commentator said that this shows the the dominant longing of God's heart. Think if third and fourth generations is a lifetime, thousands of generations is like more than you can even think of. Thousands of generations. I mean, do the math here. Like third and fourth versus thousands. Like he's speaking of more than you can imagine. And the ones that are just in your lifetime as the threat was for those who hate God. So the blessing is for those who what? Who love God and keep His commands. He said. Thousands of generations. Notice how good and kind it is that God would say, hey, yeah, there's consequences of third and fourth. But look, his his dominant longing is to bless thousands of generations of those who would love me and keep my commands. What a display of the heart of God. Isn't that just like God, to be so merciful that way? To have revealed himself and even say, this could go on. So number one and two, these are foundational. These are major they're foundational and they show the fundamental human sin, the sin of idolatry. And so in a, in a very real sense, every command that follows hangs upon these two. Martin Luther said that all those who don't, do not at all times trust God and do not in all their works or sufferings, life and death, trust in his favor, grace, and goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep this first commandment. In other words... If you're going to break any of the commandments at all, you're breaking the first commandment. And he says, and practical, real idolatry, even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments, and in addition had all the prayers, obedience, patience, and chastity of all the saints combined. For the chief work is not present without which all the others are nothing but mere sham, show, and pretense, with nothing back of them. And you could do all the others, and if you're not honoring, treasuring God in your heart, then you're guilty of all the commands. He says, if we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us, is pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please him only through and after our works, then it is pure deception, outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self as a false savior. I want us to hear the gospel tie there. How can we know that God is pleased with us? How can we know that we have God's favor. Here's what one and two do. They show us how much we need. They show us how much we lack. They show us how we've failed. Have we loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have we kept out all idolatry and cut out any other worship? And the answer is no. Your hearts have done what all hearts do. They, they've produced idols as idol factories. We've failed to keep commands one and two. And so how in the world could we know that we are pleasing God, that we are honoring to God, Well, God revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus. He said of him on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The God who speaks says to us, listen to this one. And it's this one that comes and says, and reveals himself as the way, the truth, The life, the one who says, I am, and people fall down at his feet because he is God in the flesh. He is the one who came and has all authority on heaven and in earth, or in heaven and on earth, right? This is God in the flesh, and we are meant to look to him for all of our life, all of our salvation, all of our belonging, all of our acceptance. And from him we receive through our faith in him justification made right with God. We are righteous now in God's sight because of who he is and what he has done. To look elsewhere apart from Christ for salvation, for acceptance, for belonging, for the justification of our lives, for our, how we can be made right before God, to look anywhere else is to live for something other than God and to break the first commandment is to be an idolater. So do you see how our justification by faith in Christ alone is key to the first commandment, because if we aren't trusting that Jesus is enough for our salvation, then we are idolaters, and we are breaking the first commandments. It's only through him that we are saved, and the remedy to our idolatry is to trust in Christ fully. In a very real way, all we need is need. All we need is him, and when we turn to him, he gives us our justification, our righteousness, our life With God. In Him, we don't need to doubt whether or not God is gracious to us or not, whether we're in His favor or not, whether He's pleased with us or not, whether we can ultimately satisfy Him or not. In Him, in Christ, we can know He sees us in His Son. We're His. We belong. We're accepted. And so, what we have in verses one and two, or commands, words one and two, are our very lives. They're wrapped up here. These two are so foundational. That's why there's some more length given to them in the text. That's why there's more length in this sermon to it. And on them hang all that follow. And if we are breaking one of the ones that follow, like, let's make no mistake. We're not just stealing or murdering. We're, We're an idolatry. We're breaking the first command. We're having other gods before us. And so now we turn to the third word. Number three is found in verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, Yes, okay, there's this sense of respecting and revering God's name. That is certainly there. But we need to know that that a name represents the totality of this being. Like if you were to think about your name, it matters because it represents who you are. And God's name is a representation of him. It's It's a summation, a summary of his entire character and person. It, it, in a sense, very real sense, shows who he is, his identity. And so we don't bear this name in vain. God's name then is taken in vain when it's used for something contrary to who he is, to what he's like, to what he's revealed himself to be. And so when we look to this command, it's not just about avoiding certain words. Yes, avoid some certain words. Handle God's name with reverence and respect. But we are to bear God's name in the right kind of way that doesn't misrepresent Him in any way. And so here we get to this third command, we're like, oh, now all of a sudden, this not taking the Lord's name in vain doesn't just apply to our tongue, but every part of our lives. It's word and deed that God's people, they uniquely bear God's name. They were uniquely revealed God's name. They are the ones who are bearers of that name. And so they are to then make that name known. And so how big of a tragedy and sin against God should they make that way, name known in a way that would misrepresent the one that has actually named them? And so here we have this command of not taking the Lord's name in vain that touches all their lives, how they live, how they speak, how they treat one another. So it's a little bit more than just about swear words. Yeah, we need to fear and respect and revere God's name and represent it in a way that would bring honor and glory to Him. in word, And indeed, as we bear his name. This includes what he says in verse 12 through 15, and all the other commands as we carry out our lives. Here's how we bear his name in one way. Verse 12 Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or any of the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God commands they keep the Sabbath and observing the Sabbath is a way for Israel to, again, order their lives in a way that reflects honor and worship to God. But they are ordering their lives their very weeks. It it comes all the way down to their calendar in a way that prioritizes their relationship with God. Again, this is another one that is a vertical kind of thing. It has horizontal elements for sure. It affects slaves and even donkeys. We're we're glad that horizontal relationship is being taken care of here by the Lord. It's kind of him. Uh, but But it's... demanding some, some duty before the Lord, some, some vertical relationship before the Lord, and it's prioritizing his worship, prioritizing him in their way they even schedule their weeks. Now, in the Exodus account of the 10 words, when he talks about the Sabbath, he points back to creation and says, well, this is the reason for Sabbath, because God created and then he rested on the seventh day. Deuteronomy doesn't do that. It talks about the Sabbath, and it points back to their slavery in Egypt, Nothing has changed other than to say Moses is bringing in a new motivation, that redemption has freed you now to rest. They were looking back at creation, and they were following after the pattern of God, but now, here they are on the edge of the promised land, and he says, remember that you were slaves. Remember that I freed you, and I didn't free you to just get all this work done out of you, as if that would have been the purpose of God. Freed you for a different purpose, to be a blessing to all the nations, to be my people and I be your God. He's reminding them in the rest of all of those things. The point was to enjoy God's work. And they look back to creation creation is done. There's no work to be done. God has done it all. Even He was not creating. So they rest in that. Now the redemption that they needed, they were slaves in Egypt, it's done. He's telling them, walk in it. Enjoy the freedom that I've purchased for you and the redemption that I have given you. Enjoy it. And we, we see the New Testament, it's so right, isn't it? That Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God is gifting this to us as a a grace to our lives. It's a sign of the covenant for Israel. It shows God's goodness. And as they go into the nations, it's going to uniquely, again, reveal them as his people and he is their God. What other God is like this that would say, hey, you're not about what you can produce. You're my people. So there's going to be some times when you're going to rest. There's there's not other calendars that are scheduled this way. Other gods don't do that. They demand, demand, demand. God says, here's a demand, rest. Rest. How kind is that from the Lord? So the Sabbath, what it does is it kind of looks back. It certainly points us forward. We see that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the, the, the way we look forward to rest, it, it comes in Christ. And it's in and through Christ that we enter that rest. He is the one who has done all the work that's needed for redemption so that we look to him and we believe in him and everything is done. So we don't need to be striving, striving, striving to earn something before God. We have it in Christ and we enter that rest. And part of the New Testament is saying, enjoy it. Live in that rest that Jesus has done all that was required of you, and you can rest in him. Now, that gets us to should we observe one day off? Do we need to keep a, a one in seven, six in one, sorry, Sabbath? There are so many things here, and, and we, we literally don't have enough time to go into all the ways that this could be thought of. But I do want us to keep in mind what Paul says in Romans. In Romans chapter 14... He just warns, again, kindly, carefully, chapter 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another person seems all days alike. Here's what he says. Here's the command he gives. <laughs> Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He doesn't say, you must keep this day, or if you don't, you're in sin, or anything like that. He says, be convinced in your own mind. In other words, I think he's leaving this Sabbath principle up uniquely out of all the, out of all the commands All of them are upheld in the New Testament. All of them are are shown how they apply and are to be worked out, kind of except this one. It's not just super clear exactly how believers are to carry this out. Is it to be one day off out of six? We, We don't know. We know for sure that we're to enter in the rest of Christ by saying he's done all the labor that we needed to do for salvation. We trust and we rest in him and we enjoy that rest in him so that we're not striving. When we look to the New Testament, there's this pattern of believers gathering on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day that Christ was risen and that he arose from the grave. Does that then replace the Sabbath? Some think so, but you know what they did on those days? They also had to work. And so, like, again, it just gives us pause to just say, hey, let's, let's be careful with how we apply this Sabbath. Let's make sure that we're really careful to say, rest in Christ.'" believe in Him. He's done all that is required of you for your salvation. And then let's be careful with how that works out on our calendars, knowing that we should still keep the first command and honor God all the time with all of our lives. So I hope that's perfectly plain, exactly how you're going to apply this this next week. Is this a Sabbath day? I don't know. Number one through four, those are our vertical relationship with God number f- numbers five through 10 they, they primarily deal with our relationship with others again uh, there's overlap it's not perfect but I think it's helpful these commands verse chapter numbers 5 through 10 these 10 words they show us how to love our neighbors we love ourselves they show us to how to obey that side of the command so we start in verse 16 they'll go a lot faster honor your father and your mother and you just stop right here like Kids, yeah, listen up, there's, there's, it's directed at children, sure. I, it's not directed at children only, <laughs> right? He says, he, all these are like these second person singular, they're all yous, you, you, you. So it's not like we're singling out kids, you're like, kids are the ones that are to honor their parents. Like, Israel is to honor their father and their mother. So that's what he says, honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 16, this sets up this authoritative structure within their society. There's authority and there's structure within the, how they're designed and, and ordered in their relationships with one another. And this authority structure is not only put in place by God, but it been designed by God. Uh, Augustine said it this way, if anyone fails to honor his parents, he questions, is there anyone he will spare? I think that gets at the heart of the command. That's why God commands it. Hey, if you're willing to usurp this authority it, between father and mother within the home, if you're willing to go out from underneath that and disobey that, then is there any authority that you will spare? And don't we see this so often in life? If you're, if you're willing to disobey your parents, what, what authority will you not disobey? All sorts of authorities will be usurped at that point. Good authorities, God-given ones. So the structure was then for the good of Israel, for the flourishing of Israel as a nation, as this family unit, this kind of basic building block of their culture, of their society, had a structure, had an order that had some authority that was good and right for them so that, again, they could honor the Lord, so that they could keep the first command and not have idolatry and not submit themselves to the wrong kind of authorities that would lead them astray. Those who would disobey their and dishonor their parents would dishonor and disobey any authority, including God. And so God cares very much that he is honored and worshiped as God alone, so much to say, number five, honor your father and your mother. God has commanded this. The sixth one, in verse 17, you shall not murder. Now, if there is a command that any of us is like, aced it, nailed it. This, this, is, this is probably the one, right? Like, isn't that what we say? Like, that was the Sunday school answer that we, I don't know if we were taught this, but it was like it was, it was readily available. Like, at least I haven't murdered anybody. Can't be that bad. And it's a way to justify how you're better than somebody else. Like, hey, they are really bad, but not me. I haven't done that. I haven't murdered anybody, right? That's the one we can go to and look to and lean on and say, well, at least I haven't done that until Jesus comes along, and then he says, hey, guess what? You've heard, don't murder, but listen, the, the heart of that is that you have a heart of anger. And that you may not actually be physically acting out on this, but it won't be long if you have a heart of anger and you don't repent of your sin, and you're in danger if you have a heart of anger against somebody else. I've been reading Joseph's narrative in the book of Genesis. Isn't it just how it looks? I mean, like, their, their brother's like, yeah, he's loved more than us, and he's kind of a punk around us. Like, he keeps telling us that he's going to reign over us, and we're going to bow down to him. We don't really like that. Not, haven't done anything yet, right? They didn't lash out and try to murder him. Oh, he gets a coat of many colors. Again, not lashing out at him yet, but it continues, and it grows. So the unchecked anger in their hearts, they, they thought a certain way about Joseph, and then he comes along, and pretty soon, it's right at the tip of their minds. How about we get rid of him? how about we throw him in this pit? How about we murder him? It's right there under the surface. It had been there all along. Instead of murdering, right, we can look at the flip side and say God's people are people that protect life, that, that look out for one another from attack. God's people are to uphold the, the dignity of, of human life, to hold a high value on one another's lives because We're trying to reflect the character and nature of God who clearly values life. Enough to even say to people, don't murder one another. I bought you from Egypt. Don't do this. He values life and he wants his people to reflect that value of life as well. So don't murder. He says in verse 18, the next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now we have not only the the, the home with father and children, mother and children, kind of that relationship protected, now we have the marriage relationship protected by God. And clearly family within this culture was, was critical, and God provides the security and stability needed for them to continue in a way that would be healthy and good and right in the promised land, to be a light to the nations. And so what he does, is he steps up and he makes these commands to protect certain relationships that need to be protected so that they could bear God's name well and be a light to the nation. So he protects the family structure with parents and kids and now the marriage covenant. Again, I think the same kind of principle applies. If you're willing to be unfaithful here, then aren't you going to be unfaithful to any relationship? And again, this would break the first. You're you're searching for something else to give you satisfaction and joy other than God. You're breaking the first command. If you're willing to be unfaithful in these covenants, you're you're going to be unfaithful to the covenant that God is making with you. You're, You're going to worship other things other than God, and in breaking that, you are. So he says, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 19 you shall not steal. No thievery, no robbing. Those are clearly excluded. They are to be people that are to look out for one another, even looking out for their stuff. Like, make sure you look out for this. But again, one commentator says this, not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, right, we, we might feel like we have a handle on that, but those who also seek gain from the loss of others. Or accumulate wealth through unlawful practices, and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. There is no difference between a man's robbing his neighbor by fraud or by force. Again, that the applications for these can be so broad, so wide, that it'd be hard to kind of encapsulate them in, in things that we could say here. And there's all sorts of ways. You think about stealing ideas and and, and how people, like, they just take other people's information and they put it off as their own. Like, there's all sorts of ways that this can apply. And God says of his people, yeah, there's a wide range of applicability, but you guys are to be the people that are looking out for one another, that are respecting one another enough to even kind of, like, look out for one another's stuff. Not to be a thief or a robber, but to care and have value in one another enough to even look out for the things that they have. Number eight is looking out for one another in relationship, so is number nine, and then we get to verse 20, this is, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, don't lie. The words matter, truth matters, especially to a people whose God is the one who speaks. All the other nations, they have, they have gods, so they, they don't have words, Their God is the God who speaks, and he speaks the truth, and he gives them the truth, and they're to reflect that in who they are as a people. They're to be a people who don't lie. In other words, they're upholding the truth, that their words matter, and extends to how they even are dealing with one another. There are no, no deceitful dealings. Proverbs picks this up It's like, you shouldn't even have these unjust scales, because you're to be truthful people and upholding the truth in your everyday lives with one another. It's to help your relationships with one another don't lie. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Uphold the truth. Again, everyday life is affected here with upholding the truth and being able to speak the truth. And that leads us to verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Where within the, the "do not murder" one we might be able to say, well, like, "Well at least I don't murder. I don't think we're allowed to get away with that here, are we? This one doesn't look just on outward actions. What does it do? It leaves us all without excuse, because this one reaches all the way down, not just externally, but all the way down into our hearts, all the way down to our desires. It's not, not, not even excluding actions here, although there are some actions that are excluded within this, right? It's going after desires, the things in your heart, what you want. What you covet. Now, he doesn't say that all these things are evil in and of themselves. Actually, notice some of these things are really good things. And so it's not desire itself or even desire of these things itself that matters. What are we doing when we're breaking the 10th commandment as we're breaking the 1st commandment? We're taking these things like desire for a wife, good and right desire, and we're putting it as an ultimate thing or a donkey or another's land. We're property, and we're saying, this is an ultimate thing, enough that I'm going to go after. I want, I have to have this. How come he gets it, and I don't? That's the heart of coveting. So it's a way of saying to God, you're not satisfying enough. I need that. It's also a way of saying, you can't give me, you can't provide for me the, all that will satisfy me. I need that too. So again, we're, we're breaking and we're undermining the first command in the breaking of the tenth. So we come to the end of the ten words. And and breaking of any of these ten words, and we've broken the first and second. We've shown ourselves to be idolaters. We were told by Jesus, here's the great commands, and here's how you're to do them. You're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we look at these, and we're like, we failed. We missed it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Fail again. Like, you've given us a grade on these things, and like, F, and F on, on how we love our neighbor as ourselves. But God gave us the mercy that we might hear these commands. What a grace it is to hear the law, to hear these 10 words. What a grace it is to let these 10 words level us and to say, yeah, you've failed over and over and over again. You've been that spouse who brought in another lover into the home with me repeatedly. You've failed. And while our lips at times may be in agreement, we love the Ten Commandments, we love the Lord, we often know that our hearts are far from God, far from loving God with all that we are, far from loving our neighbor as ourselves. Under the law, we are shown and displayed as law breakers. We deserve its curse, its judgment. We deserve death. Thankfully, church, the law is an in-law, or it can be. You see, Jesus came, and in him the fullness of deity dwelled. And he himself perfectly fulfills every single law. When we go through these ten words, when we go through all Deuteronomy, and we see kind of these things that seem like obscure laws to him, and we say, Jesus fulfilled it, oh my gosh, Jesus fulfilled it, oh my goodness, again, Jesus fulfilled it, he fulfilled it, he did it again, he fulfills all of these things, so that when he comes before the law, there's no curse for him. He doesn't deserve a bit of it. And yet, the New Testament gives us hope beyond hope, good news beyond what we can imagine, and it says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. That was not a curse he deserved. It was a curse he willingly brought on himself because he had set his love on us. He became a curse for us so that we might be redeemed from the curse. Now, that doesn't mean that all are redeemed from the curse. It doesn't mean that you are out from under the curse. Those who are out from under the curse are those who have turned to Jesus in faith and said, this is my God. I'm giving all of my life to him. I find my all in him. He is the one I trust and believe in. If you're not trusting in him, then you are under the curse. You are required to obey every single bit of this law. And failure at one part is failure of it all. And you deserve God's judgment. But Jesus came and he took that curse for you so that if you believe in him, You, all of a sudden, aren't under the curse anymore. You're considered the righteousness of God in Christ. Repent and believe. But if you believe, church, that curse has been taken. Swallowed up. Hear the law rightly. The law drives us to our knees. The law shows us our sin. The law leads us to the cross where our curse has been taken by our Lord, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, praise be to God. One way we remember that Christ took our curse is by taking a meal together, where we look at how Jesus' blood was poured out so that we might be, have a part in this new covenant, where we are, have our sins forgiven eternally, where we get to be the people of God and look forward to the day we're gonna be finally and fully with him forever in a greater and newer promised land under the rest that Christ has achieved and earned for us. We look back at his body that was broken and we're reminded that he took the curse that we deserved and could never live under. We would have been completely destroyed by it, suffering its judgment forever, but he came so that we might have hope. And so take this meal, if you're a believer, and be reminded of what Jesus has done. Look forward to the final and full rest that he's gonna bring one day and do this together by faith. If you're not a believer, take Christ. Believe in him. And we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. Let's pray together.
2: God, you tell New Testament Christians through your Apostle Paul to not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And you tell us to examine ourselves and reflect on the sin that is in our own hearts. And I can't imagine a better sermon to set us up for that than we've heard today. I think all of us heard one by one, one through 10, of ways that we have failed and scored an F when it comes to pleasing you through our own works and living according to your will and it's so strange because that stings and it should sting because those of us who love you we want to do what you say and we want to follow your commands and, and that's good and we need to aim at following these commands and my heart is torn I'm broken and convicted and hate many of the ways that I think and desire and speak and do. We are sinful and yet we drink the wine and eat the bread as almost a toast to our failure, and your victory. Jesus, you didn't fail. You didn't sin. You put on human skin, and you lived a perfect life because you knew that we were and would be a mess, and you loved unworthy people. And at the right time, You gave your life for your enemies and you laid it down and you took it up again in resurrection and you've imparted forgiveness to us. You have declared us to be not guilty before the heavenly father. And even though our sin stings and should, it doesn't sting in a way that damns us or condemns us or keeps our head down It stings in a way that lifts our heads up. And that conviction from the Holy Spirit assures us that we are your children. We belong to you and you've forgiven us and you have indwelled us and you are not done changing us and making us more like you, Jesus. And so we cry out to you today with the Lord's Supper and we say thank you for obeying these commands in our place. Thank you for your declaration of freedom from guilt and judgment before you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables us to live in the ways that you've commanded God. And we pray, we beg you, we ask you to help us live holy lives. We know that we can, but we can't do it in our own strength. And so God, help us to depend on you. Out of love and thanksgiving, God, may we obey you your commands. You have been good to us, and you are worthy of lives that reflect your goodness. Thank you so much. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.